eat a whole bunch, you know, in one sitting. You know, the little cuties, you know, either easy to, or the halos or whatever, those are easy to peel. But here's the confession. I really like, I really like California maples. And, and I know they're thick. I know they're hard to peel, but there is a trick. And if you'd like to know, you can come and see me afterward. All right. But here's the deal. The problem with oranges is sometimes one will start to get a little mold on it. One will start to get soft. And if you leave it in the bag or you leave it in the box that it's in and it's rubbing up against other oranges, it starts to infect that one too, right? And unless you deal with that somehow, it'll infect the whole box. Now, if, if you let it to get to that point where all the oranges in the box or the bag get infected, then you really don't love oranges, okay? But here's the point. Is that sometimes this can happen in the church. You see, just as infected oranges left unchecked has an impact on all the other oranges, sometimes unrepentant sin that's left unchecked has an impact on the church as well. And we're going to continue our sermon from last week. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to crack your Bibles open there. But Paul's addressing the church in Corinth and asking them to separate from a sinner who was not willing to repent from their sin. It was taking its toll on the church. And it was taking its toll on that individual. So we're going to get into that today. Let me pray for us first of all. And then we'll look at God's word. So Lord, again, we realize the reason you came was to deal with our sin. Forgive us from that sin, but also to set us free from that sin, to change our nature. And so, Lord, as we look into your word today, would you give us grace to respond in spirit and in truth to what you have to say to us? And, Lord, if we need to repent, I pray that you give us grace to repent. If we need to forgive, I pray you give us grace to forgive. But I pray that we will be serious about sin because you are. And so, Lord, would you make us a holy people as unto you? And Lord Jesus is in your precious name, I pray these things. Amen. And so last week we were at the beginning of, of chapter 5. And we looked at the beginning of a, talking about a sinful sexuality. In verse 1 it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind that not even the pagans, they do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's mother. Now last week, we talked about the fact that God did create sex. And it's a good thing. In fact, he blessed it. But the context for sexual intimacy is between one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. Anything out of that is sexual immorality. The Greek calls the word pornea, which we get the word pornography from. And in this case, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, which is not a good thing. And in fact, we're going to talk a little bit later about a holy sexuality as we get to the end of chapter 6. That is, as a Christ follower, we are to submit our sexuality to God because it is a powerful thing. It's bond-forming, heart-affecting, life-changing. It can create life and it can also be destructive. But in this situation, the church's response to this man's sin was rather 
then, I guess, mourning. It was a perverted pride. Look at verse 2. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? And I put your put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. This is happening right in front of them. They see it. They're aware of it. But instead of being sorrowful or instead of excluding this person uh, out, of, out of a fellowship, they made it something to boast about. And likely, why were they proud about this? It's likely a misunderstanding, an error in understanding God's grace, their freedom in Christ. You see, they were looking at their freedom as, as a reason to to sin, to do whatever they wanted, rather than understanding that Jesus wanted to set them free from that sin. What's what Jesus really came to do. And so within this error, Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Paul assorts his spiritual authority calling for serious action to be taken. It calls for a, what we called a delivering discipline. Verse three. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus from the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Again, we talked about this last week. This is, it may seem harsh, and this is where the scripture stays. But it's also meant to be for the benefit and to sing to our hearts. In fact, in handing this man over to Satan, that his flesh might be destroyed, it was for his benefit. To allow Satan to have his way in this man's life so that this unrepentant man, may, or well, this man is, is man in this situation, may understand his own perilous way and see that he's become, become enslaved to sin, wreaking havoc in his life. That he might repent, turn back to the Lord at the end of the verse, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is what we were talking about last week. If you want to go back and kind of get the finer details, you can go online, www.bereancc.org. Go down the left-hand side of this week's message. You can find last week's message. But we want to understand God's heart for discipline is not to be punitive, but really for our good. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, and then to verse 11, understanding God's heart, where um, the author of Hebrews says, and have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses a son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And then on to verse 11 in that chapter, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but, it, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God's purpose in disciplining is because he loves us, not because he's just trying to punish us and hammer us. So for this individual to be cut off from the body was actually for his benefit, even though it seemed like tough love at the time. But Paul is also concerned about the unrepentant sinner and how it affects the body, kind of our orange analogy here. And, how, and so Paul, the Lord, addresses us today about that and what I'm going into what I call a sanctifying separation this is where we pick it up at verse 8 
excuse me, verse 6. Again, addressing their boasting. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now perhaps some of you are wondering, okay, what does baking bread with leaven or not have to do with the health of the body? Paul is using the requirements of the Old Covenant Passover as a metaphor for church holiness and purity. And he starts out again saying, hey, look, your pride is not good. Your boasting is not good. Allowing this unrepentant sin to go unchallenged among you, it's having an infectious result. And so he quotes this, this proverb. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Now, I'm not usually into um, criticizing translations of the Bible, but in this case, the NIV, I think, doesn't quite get Paul's meaning here. The word yeast is not used in the Greek at all. You see, there are two ways to leaven bread. One is to make dough, put some, put some yeast in it, and it rises in a few hours, right? The other way is to make dough and then take a piece of that dough and separate it out and let it ferment for a, a few few days, maybe even a week. And then you mix it back into the dough. And that's how you leaven the bread. That's how you get it to rise. That's how sourdough is made if you're into sourdough, which I am a fan. Okay? And so as what you do is every time you make bread, you separate out that a piece of that dough to let it continue. You know, that starter dough, that starter bread. And I think someone told me in, in the office, that's also the way you make friendship bread, I guess. Here is the problem with that. You keep doing that over and over and again, and that becomes its own ecosystem. And things start getting growing in there that maybe you did not intend for that to grow. So, in, in this, this case, um, Exodus chapter 12, talking about this, about keeping the Passover, commanded that every year during this Passover time, that the house be cleaned out of all this leaven, all this starter dough. Any of that gets put out. All And the whole week you'd be just eating unleavened bread. It was to be removed from the house. And just as leaven left unchecked and allowed to continue to grow, the detrimental maybe to the, the health of the household, so, sin left unchecked, allowed to grow in the church, becomes detrimental to the body of Christ. Again, he says, just as a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So, continual contact and interaction with an unrepentant sinner in the church can have a negative impact on the church. In this case, it may have been giving permission for sexual immorality. Or it might be just giving permission for other sin. Well, you know, if this guy's doing this, what's the big deal if I do this? But ultimately, it was in contrast, contrary to what Jesus came to do in setting us free from sin. Again, he came to 
forgive us, but he also came to set us free from being slaves to sin. And it was totally contrary to our identity in Christ, as well as people who are set apart. So he uses this, this Passover imagery. He says in verse 7, Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. You see, in removing this unrepentant sinner from the midst, was removed this leaven-like influence. And it was in keeping with identifying with God's people as holy and set apart. Sin would not be allowed to continue to grow unchecked. But also, in keeping with the gospel, he uses this Passover imagery. He, he talks about, you know, he reminds us that being that unleavened bread is not something we do in ourselves. It takes something outside of ourselves. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, Jesus, just as when the death angel came and passed over a house, when the, it saw the blood of the lamb on the side of the doorpost. So Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the one who makes us holy before a holy God that gives us his righteousness, that makes us a new creation, that makes us a new batch, if you will. As you really are, Paul says. So there's an exhortation here in verse 8 that we are to be influenced by him rather than the leaven of sin. Therefore, verse 8, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, just as the Old Testament saints kept the festival, if you will, by eliminating all leaven from their house and their diet, so the Christ follower keeps the festival of God's forgiveness in living for Him. Not with the malice, not with the leaven of malice, which is a desire for the bad of another, sometimes that's hidden, or wickedness, which is evil and wrong and it has its harmful effects but with the unleavened bread of sincerity that is desire expressed that's not deceptive there's no hidden motives what you see is what you get and that of truth that which is right that is which is correct that which is not false that is what is not faulty and all that is being influenced by the one who is that one Passover lamb. So again, this sanctified uh, separation is removing the infectious influence of the one unrepentant sinner. Here was the problem, though, in, in Corinth. Corinth was no bastion of virtue. It was a place where it was a port town, and port town things happened which were connected with vice usually. So there might have been some misunderstanding with what Paul says, and so he gives what I call a separation clarification. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual, with sexual, immoral, with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or, greed, or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. There's an issue of pragmatism. 
Look, if you go down to the market, if you're just walking down the street, if you're just doing life in Corinth, you're going to run into people who are sinners. Some are going to be sexually immoral. Some are going to be greedy. Some are going to be swindlers. Some are going to be idolaters. And there's a, I know this list isn't exhaustive. There are going to be others that you're going to run into. The scripture says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone you meet is going to be a sinner. You can't remove yourself from this. The world is full of sinners. That's how it goes. And also there's an issue of expectation. Don't be surprised when sinners act like sinners. Don't be surprised when sinners act like sinners. If someone does not have Jesus Christ in their life, we can't have an expectation of their life being transformed. We can't have an expectation that they're going to hold up the values of the Scripture. Sometimes I think we have unrealistic expectations about how people are going to behave. Because we grew up in a nation that had some, some spiritual roots, but that's not happening to people who aren't following Jesus. You can't expect that. We have to understand that the Scripture says that those who are not following Christ are blinded by the God of this world. And they need God to reveal themselves to them. But how do we interact with these people? Well, I think from a, from a wisdom standpoint, Jesus says, you know what? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. So be, you know, wise as serpents, the innocent as doves. You know, realize that there might be some people who are trying to rip you off. You've got to be wise about that. But on the other hand, understand that he has put us in the world to influence the world. To have our own leavening process, if you will. To be salt and light. And to be Jesus ambassadors. To show people what following Jesus is like by how we live our life. And then actually telling them about it. Telling them about how Jesus has changed your life. To have that reverse effect of the unleavened of Jesus that he brings into our lives, impacting our world. So who do we need to be concerned about in this passage? Paul, I think, gives us what I call an obligation identification in verse 11. Now I'm writing to you that you must, must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. I think this answers the question, Am I my brother's keeper? I think the answer is yes. Those of us in the church, we ought to be involved in each other's lives. But also, it's, it points out that it's not just sexual immorality that makes someone a candidate for church discipline. It can be someone who's greedy. Someone who believes that the more stuff they hoard, the more life that they have. And it may be impacting other things detrimentally. And in fact, Colossians chapter 3, verse 6 says that greed is actually a form of idolatry. You've made that your God. There's a problem with that. And the next 
uh, thing on the list is being an idolater. That is putting your faith or putting your hope in anyone or anything else than God. That's a continuing thing. Boy, you might be a candidate for church discipline. Or more, more specifically or more, uh, I guess, impactfully, someone who is a slanderer. Someone who's tearing others down with their words. You know, we may say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But that's a lie. James spends a whole time talking about the impact and the power of words. Proverbs does it as well. Boy, someone who's a slanderer, they can do a lot of damage in God's body, God's church. Someone who's a drunkard. Someone who is allowing a different spirit to lead them other than the spirit of the living God. That's why Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Who is leading you? What spirit is leading you? What spirit are you dependent upon? Someone who is a swindler. Someone who's taken other people's that enters a whole other issue of covetousness, theft, and what happens. Who do we need to be concerned about? We need to be concerned about those who are in the body of Christ. God is saying, those outside the church, God will judge that. We don't need to be concerned about that. But here's the thing, right? The whole thought of church discipline is not an easy thought. And how do we use it in a proper way? When we're not abusing each other, when we're not using it even as a weapon of against each other. You know, we're looking for sin and then we want to bring it to the church right away. It's kind of like my kids, you know, when one child says, Dad, did you know so-and-so is doing this? Are you really concerned about the person or are you just trying to get them in trouble? You know, church discipline can be used improperly as a weapon. So how do we, how do we deal with this? First of all, sometimes when we're looking for sin, there are, there are offenses that are just non-offenses, right? There are offenses that are non-offenses. We may be sensitive about something that we think is sin, and it's really not sin for another. You know, it may be an issue of, you know, it's okay for this person to maybe view one movie where it's not okay for another person. Or even even the consumption of alcohol, you know. For some one person, that's just a stumbling block. They shouldn't be involved. For another, they have the freedom in Christ to do that. Or they're just non-offenses that are, you know, are perceived. Have you ever thought that someone just doesn't like you because they gave you kind of a funny look? Well, I just know that person doesn't like you. How do you know? Well, they looked at me funny. I'll tell you what, folks, if that were true, I'd be offended by all of you every Sunday. Just telling you, you got to get over that. If there's a real issue, then go to the person personally. But truthfully, uh, sometimes we're finding offenses that are not really there. Second of all, they're just minor offenses, you know, things that happen, people being human. You know, every once in a while we have a potluck. Am I going to be offended every time a little kid runs in front of me in front of the line? Or takes that, you know, that piece of chicken that I want? Or what have you? There are minor offenses that happen all the time. And I'll tell you what, as we're in relationship with each other, minor offenses are going to happen. It just we don't intend them to be there, but it happens. Anytime you're with somebody, you might end up offending them. 
you don't intend to. And then sometimes, you know, if you, you're getting close to somebody, sometimes offenses do happen. Sin does happen amongst brothers and sisters. And we have to be willing to forgive that. We have to be willing to forgive that. You know, Colossians 3.13 talks about bearing with each with one another, forgiving each other. Whatever grievances we may have with one another, just as the Lord in Christ has forgiven us. But really where church discipline in this situation comes into play is where we see a continued pattern and no repentance. Continued pattern and no repentance. And we're always approaching this with a heart of restoration and humility, even in that. Paul in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. When we come to somebody, we're always looking to be restored to their life. And we're also understanding that we're still dealing with our own struggle with sin. In fact, we need to be able to confess our sin to one another in order that you know, we can be healed. You know, one of the most amazing things that ever happened in a fellowship that I was part of was a singles ministry where the guys, and I've told this story before, but I, I want to tell you because it's, it's powerful to me. And I honestly had nothing to do with it. It was just the Holy Spirit at work in this men's group. It was a men's Bible study. And beforehand, there was a time of prayer for each other. And one week, a guy in our group came and said, guys, I just got to tell you, I am addicted to pornography, and I don't know what to do about it. I am stuck. I hate it. I don't like it. But I, I, I don't know what to do. And this is the first time anyone had ever said anything like that in this group. And it was the most freeing thing that ever happened. Because another, another guy said, you know what? That's true of me too. That's true of me too. That's true of me too. I would say 70% of that, of that group of men were affected by this sin. But here's what happened. Over the weeks that, that followed, guys were able to bring that to each other and hold each other accountable. That, that's important. But also just the fact to say, you know what? I failed this week. And for someone to say, you know what, that's okay. It's not okay that you failed, but it's okay because Jesus has forgiven you and you're still looking to walk in the light. But what happened is that sin started to lose its grip over the hearts and lives of those men. And they were set free. And a lot of those guys, I'm not saying that just went away, but it, it didn't, it wasn't the master over them that it used to be. And it was an amazing thing. And again, back to that James... <coughs> 516 passage that we can that we be able to confess our sin to one another and pray for one another in order that we might be healed. This needs to be a place where we can confess those sins before each other rather than going, oh, I can't believe you're struggling with that. No, it's hey, I'm right there along with you. I'm praying for you. And maybe I don't struggle with the same sin, but I have my own issues. It needs to be a place of grace where we can be real. And bring to light what's going on. But sometimes, let's face it, people don't want to give up that sin. 
But this is a process. A process of not trying to publicly shame anyone. So you start out as, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 16. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their, their fault. Just between you two. If they listen to you, you, will, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, then take two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then in verse 17, if they refuse to listen, tell the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. See, church discipline and putting someone out a fellowship with the church is, is really the last result, the last resort. But breaking fellowship with somebody for that reason is for the purity of the church. But it's always with the hope of reconciliation. Not to put them in this permanent place of being untouchable. You're always hoping for reconciliation, rest, restoration, and repentance. And it's not about being good at keeping the rules. It's about how sin affects relationships. Relationships with God and relationships with each other. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13 informs us on this. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So sin causes us to turn away from the living God. But listen to verse 13. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceitful. It's promising a life that it can't fulfill. It's promising something that ultimately leads to death. That's ultimately why we're trying to follow God in, in even implementing church discipline. Because sin unchecked does bring a turning away from God. It does harden the heart. And we need to be able to bring these things into the life of Christ. And confess them. In order that we might be forgiven. In order that we might be set. But in order for the protection of an individual and the protection of the body. And that's why that's in here. And again, we're going to talk more about God's plan for, for holy sexuality. But that's not the only sin that, that can fall under this, this cleansing process of church discipline. If God intended for our good, the discipline is out of love, Father's heart. Let me pray and I'm going to ask Bobby and the